0: As a religious Jewish man, he's having a conversation with a scandalous Samaritan who, by culture and gender and behavior, is an outsider. And uh, it's a wonderful conversation. It's fascinating. You can listen to it online if I ever post it. and You do that kind of thing. What we're going to do today is listen in on the conversation that follows afterwards. Because Jesus' disciples show up afterwards, and I can imagine they give him the kind of look that your friends give me and you when we run into each other at Starbucks? I get this from some of your friends. Like, they're all cool. And they thought you were cool. Until you start talking to this strange 40-year-old guy in Starbucks who just gave you an awkward side hug. And all of a sudden, they're looking at me like this. And I'm imagining that Jesus' disciples are looking at Jesus like this. What are you doing talking to this woman? And um, what's remarkable about this Everything that happens after this conversation is about to happen with Jesus' disciples. is that it all flows out of what this woman has done. She's heard Jesus' conversation. She's not quite sure what she thinks about him. She's someone who's been living, because of her past and her present, in hiding. And in chapter 4, verse 29, tells us that she goes back into town and tells everyone in the town, even though she's a person who's been living in hiding, hey, this guy just told me everything I've ever done. Okay, it's pretty out there. Could he be the Christ, the promised one, and she brings everyone in town to meet Jesus? And this is the conversation we're going to have now. So you can follow along. We're in John chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 31 to 43. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, has anyone bought him something to eat? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For, the, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many these Ameritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. All right, I'm going to pray. You can join me if you like. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story, and we thank you. You've recorded it for us so that we can benefit from it. We pray that you would show us wonderful things about yourself. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, our topic tonight, briefly, is evangelism. And uh, I feel like I almost got to quantify and even defend talking about evangelism. First of all, it's a, it's a very churchy word. It's the word Christians use to describe the activity of talking about Christianity with those that aren't Christians. It has a persuasive element to it. And we live in a culture where sometimes any act of persuasion is seen as aggressive. I think that's unfair and unfortunate, but it's the reality. It's also the case that many of us have, whether we're Christians or not, unwittingly been the victim of very aggressive evangelism tactics from other people. And therefore, the, the very topic is this would be discomforting. And it's too bad. I was uh, reading this great book about evangelism called Tell the Truth. And the author there describes a uh, a scenario. He he writes a book about evangelism. So he studies evangelism, sharing the gospel, uh, sharing the good news with others. And he talked about going to this conference on evangelism. And the speaker that was speaking was a noted evangelist. And uh, he had had all kinds of success convincing people to believe in Christianity. Um, And he was sort of bragging. And uh, it was very troubling to the guy who was writing the book. And uh, his crowning illustration of his methodology was that, uh, and he actually pulled out a, a little gospel track, a little pamphlet, and demonstrated for the crowd. Uh, his, his crowning methodology, in his last illustration, was that he rolls up tracks and has learned how to flick them out of the passenger side the window so that it lands and rolls at the feet of people sitting on the side of the street. He calls it dropping gospel bombs. In the author of the book, Will Mesker is rightly disgusted by that kind of behavior. The guy's sort of bragging about, yeah, I dropped tracks of the feet of hitchhikers. Anyone listening should ask, why don't you stop for hitchhikers? Care for them instead. Um, yeah, why is it that it seems people, Christians like myself, either are afraid to ever talk about their faith, we don't share at all, or the people that do share seem to be uber-aggressive, And disrespectful of others. Is there a happy medium somewhere? And I think we'll see tonight that there is a healthy way to do it. And that despite the abuses that have happened and all the reasons we're afraid to talk about our faith, that those that are known by Jesus make them known. That's a simple message of the night. Those that are known by Jesus make Him known. And we've got some examples here to learn from. Jesus is talking about himself. uh, And we can learn from his example. But perhaps more helpful for us is this American woman, just a normal person who seems completely unqualified for this work, and she's doing the work of making him known. So we're going to talk about how uh, doing this work of making Jesus known is satisfying, it's shared, and it's all about staying and saying. I'm going to go through this really quickly, but uh, I think in the process of doing this, I want to do a couple things. I want to destigmatize the activity. I want to show you that it can be done in a way that respects the dignity of others. And if you're someone here tonight who's not quite sure if you're a Christian, you're not sure what it means, I still want you to listen in for lots of reasons. Um, For one, if Christians don't ever talk about this, ever, then you have to actually ask yourself, this is so great, but Christians don't talk about it. Maybe it's not all that great after all. That's a fair objection. Secondly, if Christians only talk about this in ways that are disrespectful, that's a real problem as well. I think you have some axes to grind. Um, I want you to listen and do some quality control for me. Like if I say things tonight that that you think are offensive or disrespectful, uh, I'd love for you to talk to me about it. So, but my my first point here is that uh, this work that Jesus is inviting us into of talking about Christianity, of who Jesus is, should be satisfying. So the disciples have returned. Jesus is gabbing with this uh, Samaritan woman. She's run off into town. She told everyone about everything. disciples come back. They went to come to get food. They come back and Jesus is like, I don't need your food. I've got food you don't know about. Um, verse 31. They're like, where did you get food? You had food. We went to town. Why don't you give us your food? Or rather they ask, uh, who gave you food? And uh, Jesus here is speaking metaphorically to completely miss it. Um... As is often the case, and this conversation proceeds on a metaphorical misunderstanding. Uh, But Jesus says in verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me to accomplish His work. Jesus says, simple translation, I get satisfaction out of obeying my Father, out of doing His will. And I use the word obedience because, like the word evangelism, is sort of. Gives us the heebie jeebies. Our definition of obedience runs something like this making myself do something I don't want to do. That's how we often think about obedience. Making myself do something I probably deep down don't really want to do. Uh, Jesus' definition of obedience seems to run like this embracing my loving Father's goodwill for me. I have a good Father. He has a will, and I embrace it and do it. And uh, when I do that, when I embrace His will, it puts me in tune, not only with Him, but with others and the way things are supposed to work in this world. But not only does He get satisfaction in obedience, but also in accomplishing His work, so He says in verse 34, which means God's not done working. And the story of Scripture, this is the quickest summary of Scripture you'll ever get, the whole Bible is God created all good, we broke it, God did not leave it alone, but promised He was going to fix it. And the whole story of the Bible is God at work to fix all the broken stuff. And Jesus is the spirit head of that mission. And Jesus is here accomplishing, carrying out the Father's work of restoring all the broken stuff. The disciples completely miss this. They don't get the metaphor. They're thinking about their stomachs. Uh, They're blind to the spiritual metaphor and the realities behind them. And I think we can identify with that. Right? We spend most of our days zeroed in on our tasks, our homework, the next meal, the next job, the next application that we have to do. And that's just sort of the way we often live. And it's not just college. It's the way your parents live. It's the way your older friends live. It's meal to meal, job to job, day to day, work to work, maybe a vacation, right back to the grind. And that's just sort of the way it is. And we sort of say that's okay. At the same time, we're usually deeply discontent with all that I think we're all plagued by this thing I call the disease of, I I don't call it this, someone else has called it this, the disease of next. We just cannot wait for the next thing because we think the next thing has to be better than this thing. And then we get to that next thing. And it's disappointing as well, (laughs) so we get to the next thing. Um, And that's the way we often go about our lives. And I think it's because we have a poor view of work and we, we expect ultimate satisfaction out of our work which is asking a lot of your work. That's your work, your job, your bread, your food, the things you do every day provide you ultimate, deep satisfaction. And I think partly it's because we don't do what Jesus does. He embraces obedience. Being close and right with His Father is that which provides Him satisfaction. We're trying to squeeze all of that out of our job, our work, our school, our meal. And it's asking a lot of your job, your work, your meals. That... We have to take the place of the right relationship we should have with our God and with others. So Jesus finds this work satisfying. And we should too. But not only does it kind of satisfying, it's something that he shares. And I'm going to run to this one really quick. Verses 35-38 through 38 make this really clear. He begins to describe this work. Um, and he describes it in very agricultural terms. Hey guys, you say there's four months of the harvest. He looks out and things are just barely growing. We just planted it four more months. And Jesus goes on and says, it looks like that. But I want you to know, spiritually, the harvest is now. There's no need to wait. Someone's been at work, the sower, he says, and uh, you haven't seen him. But whatever is being planted here is so miraculous that it grows in such a way that there is great work to be done right now, spiritually. Right now, there's great work to be done. And what Jesus is saying is that God has been at work ahead of them, preparing things, and that there is significant." Work to be done for those that are Christians right now, all the time, because God is busy at work, and we get to join Him in that work. Um, God's at work redeeming, recovering, restoring people one at a time, and we get to join Him in that. And uh, I, I've got uh, I've got a bunch of kids, and uh, an overwhelming number of kids. Sometimes it seems, and uh, they always want to join in my work. And sometimes it's advantageous. Oftentimes it's not. Right now, in the last two weeks, they want to go everywhere I go. Which is really cool. Sort of flattering and intoxicating. They literally want to go everywhere I go.
1: and they're, they're actually paranoid all
0: the time. Where are you going? And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> but you're, like, getting dressed. I'm like, I don't walk around the house with underwear like you do. Like, I, I am dressed. But they always think I'm going to go somewhere that my, my oldest two wants to go with me all the time. It's great. They just want to be with their dad. This would last forever. And it does not. Perhaps you remember this stage. But they also want to help. And, uh, you know, they're not really helpful with, like, sermon preparation. So I can't take them with me everywhere I go. But some things that I do, they're very helpful. Or a little bit. But I want them to help. And as they grow, they'll get more and more helpful. And I delight in doing that with them. In fact, when I think back about my childhood, some of my most satisfying moments were times when I worked with my dad. I had a good childhood. But I enjoyed working with my father. Some of my most pleasant memories of him are those things. And he died years ago. And I don't think about it often that he's dead. But often when I I do think about it, it's when I am doing work that we would normally do together. the kind of stuff. And it recalls those pleasant memories and how satisfying they were to work with him. And I think that sort of shows the heart of God. That he wants to pull us into this good work that he's doing. And we need to take a vital role in that. We share it with him. We get to share it with each other. We get to experience the joy of it, verse 36, that there's rejoicing because the work is prosperous. God actually is uh, redeeming and restoring the world one by one uh, all over the planet. And we get to join him in that. It's a great work. So God wants us to join in that joy that he's uh, experiencing as he does the work of redemption, of bringing people to himself. So it's satisfying. We share it. And then the question is, well, what exactly am I supposed to do? And it, theoretically, if I really want to do this work that you're talking about, of evangelism, that sounds freaky, whatever. Uh, what is that? How do I do it? Um, and you know, I, years ago I did a seminar on evangelism. It was a weekend long. And I completely obliterated everyone, like information overload. None of you were here, right? You know, those people all drowned that day in the content I gave them. we never seen them since. Um, and if I had to do it again I would do it completely differently I really would um, and uh, I, I would start where I'm going to do right now with this very simple statement uh, this example of the Samaritans uh, the work that God's calling us to do sharing him with others is a simple one saying and saying so Jesus is showing his men what it means to do this work and they don't know what to do they're sort of blind but this Samaritan woman Who's known Jesus for like 10 minutes. And she's not even sure if she really believes in him or not. She's already doing it. And she's doing it pretty well. She doesn't have a complicated message. She doesn't have a deep theology. She simply runs back to town and says, That guy knows everything about me. And it's affected her powerfully. Otherwise, she wouldn't share these, the shameful thing about herself openly. And then she invites them to come with her. Verse 29 they aren't powerful words, but they're real and they're persuasive. And people listen. And uh, they come. And, and the text tells us that some people believe because of her words. And they come because of her and they hear Jesus' words. And in verses 41 and 42, More than believe. We heard you. And then we've heard him. And they basically get what she got. This guy gets me. He knows my heart. He knows what's wrong with me. And he's got answers. And I want what he's got. And uh, through the words... That they say uh, their their work is effective, but it's also by staying, not just saying but staying. Um, you know, and I make a point of this because uh, at the end of the day, Jesus leaves and goes back to Jerusalem, and this American woman remains unnamed. We don't know who she is. We don't know who the single person in this town is. Lots of people became Christians this day, and uh, we don't know anything about them. Jesus stayed, he saved for two days, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, Samaria was the equivalent of a truck stop. This place was the equivalent of a truck stop in West Virginia for us. I gotta go through there to get where I'm going. I don't want to stop there. But Jesus gets there, there's work to be done, there are people that want to know him, and he stays for two days. And those people stay there forever. And they share with one another good news of Jesus. Um and we don't do that. We've got this disease of next. We can't wait to run on to the next thing. And so we're busy running day by day from assignment to assignment to thing to thing. It's not just you. It's me, too. We're very bad at making time for people. Many times, and I understand, you're living in Oakland. You can't wait to escape the madness of Oakland and move to Squirrel Hill or Friendship or Shady Side or whatever because you want to get away from all these people. I understand. Uh, at the same time, this is a unique opportunity a, a time in your life to be around people that, that God's put you with so that you can love them. And uh, you don't have to have special words. You don't have to uh, be ethically prepared. Um, you don't have to have a sophisticated theological defense of everything. You don't have to have it all figured out. You can just simply say, like this woman does, uh, this guy seems to know a lot about me. This makes sense to me. I've not got it all figured out. But why don't you come with me and we'll see. That's what she does. Why don't you come with me and see? That's not, that's not impossible. We can do that. And uh, it's something that we're all supposed to do. Um, if we call ourselves Christians, if we believe that Jesus has really done this work in our lives. He's done the hard work. Just remember that. He's the one who went to the cross, died for us, to make us right. He's pursued us. He's given us new hearts and ears to hear and understanding. And now He lets us join in the Father's good work. And uh, I, again, I'm not asking you to stand on the street corners and loudly yell at people or to roll gospel text at people's feet. I didn't do any of that. I'm simply asking you to, to listen. Is, is Jesus telling you about yourself? Are you still figuring it out? Okay. But you can do this. You can say. And you can say. And you can bring people and invite Him as you trying to figure out who He is yourself. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that uh, You were willing to go places and say things to people that were not.